Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Controlling Commodity Costs, and we are your hosts, Craig Turner and Tom Dazzle. We are your authority to gain control of your commodity exposure, stay ahead of the competition, and maximize your profit margins. This podcast is brought to you by StoneX Group, a Fortune 100 company with a 100-year history in the commodity markets. You can find us on the NASDAQ. All right, and welcome to episode number seven of Controlling Commodity Costs, where we take an in-depth, closer look at some of the services offered by StoneX. And up to this point, we focused a lot on the custom hedge products that we have, the education, and some of the professionals we have there. We wanted to bring in, on today's episode, Brent Grecian. He's president and CEO of StoneX Commodity Solutions, which is another division within StoneX, and they focus on the physical uh, commodity side of the business. So talking in terms of physical procurement and listeners out there in the audience, I thought it'd be great for you to understand this really valuable service that we have within StoneX in addition to our hedging services. Um, And uh, with that, wanted to just bring in Brent. Uh, Brent, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. What were you doing before you got with StoneX and how'd you get into this? Yeah, uh, so I spent the first part of my career in banks, uh, about 12 and a half years with Wells Fargo uh, in commercial and corporate banking and then uh, on their commodity derivatives desk. Uh, and then at Scotia Bank for a couple of years in kind of similar capacity on the, their commodity uh, desk. Um, and really, um, you know, the basis to kind of what we do today, a lot of that came from sort of that background, both in the way we look at deploying working capital and some of our structures and the way we think about managing risk and supply chains and working with clients uh, to craft solutions for them. It's a- um, yeah, so it, it's around um, kind of the, the back end of, uh, Dodd-Frank implementation and kind of could seeing what was coming to banks with Basel III from capital requirements, um, it kind of became clear that uh, life on a commodity desk inside of a bank was going to be um, more challenging than it had been. Um, and StoneX provided sort of the best mix of being a financial services company and having a really client-centric service offering um and and client-centric service um culture um and having kind of the the flexibility to do some things in the physical space um that was really appealing and why several of us made the leap from from the banking side excellent and so what type of companies does the stonex commodity solutions team work with Yeah, so we work with primarily um, producers, so farmers in the agri space uh, and consumer clients, but we deal at all levels of the supply chain and kind of so traders, commodity merchandisers, cash brokers, um, introducing brokers are all sort of folks that we deal with pretty regularly. Um, But our 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 focus is definitely on kind of the the upstream and the downstream ends of, of the commodity supply chain. So for instance, we work with farmers through our Farmer Direct and our Merchants Plus offerings. 
that allow producers to hedge uh, forward values through a mixed menu of different fixed pricing and options-based structures. So a lot of, I think what you've covered in, in some of your other episodes, we, we can provide those same um, pricing mechanisms, but embedded into a physical purchase contract. Um, and what that allows uh, the producer to do is get similar exposure um, to the markets or hedge exposure to the markets. Um, but a couple of kind of key benefits, the way kind of we see it, one is because these are cash contracts that require future delivery, uh, not a derivative instrument per se, um, it allows us to offer them without posting margin and, and making margin calls. Um, the, the, the other sort of benefit or similar to using a derivative trade is we also give flexibility on delivery. Um, so the farmer can make separate you know, basis decisions from their pricing decisions um, while maintaining uh, a cash contract as their, their hedge instrument. Uh, we also, that. oh, I'm sorry, Brent. I was just going to chime in and, and second sure. that, say from working with producers over here, it, the value in that is, has really been great. Uh, and I think they're getting a lot out of it as, as more and more of them are made aware of this service offerings. It really does open them up to kind of shop their basis around, be able to have the, the, the certainty of setting their, you know, their futures price without having to margin it and be able to shop their basis around. Um, yep. It really adds a lot of flexibility. And I know you'll get into how that works on the on the consumer side as well. But I, I know from from experience, that's been very helpful and very valuable for those clients. That's great to hear. Um, on the consumer side, we're really focused on kind of three three primary groups, food and consumer packaged goods companies, livestock integrators kind of across the, the, the spectrum uh, and industrial processors. And, and there we're really looking to assist them with managing their procurement needs. Um, again, this is a bit of an a la carte menu, but often combined in multiple source, multiple services, but it's sourcing um, the commodity, con managing the contracting process, managing all the logistics and delivery schedules um, in coordination with our buyers. Uh, so that can include truck, rail, barge, container transport, in some cases, even vessel with, uh, with break bulk uh, capabilities. Uh, it provides, uh, again, an instrument like we talked on the farmer side, but on the other side for hedging uh, and using different pricing structures within the cash contract. Um, the motivation here is sometimes margin relief, but more often we find it, it's it's really around avoiding accounting, um, hedge accounting treatment. Um, and just kind of a side note and gap accounting um, for consumers and producers um, there's asymmetry created in your hedge versus um, the other parts of your balance sheet or income statement. And you have to go through a pretty comprehensive um, and, and extensive hedge accounting process to kind of remove some of the earnings volatility that hedging can actually create. I think Ironically, that, uh, if, oh. if you do that inside of a cash contract, um, that accounting treatment kind of goes away. Uh, so a lot of times it's it's a it's a more efficient way from an administrative administrative process to uh, to um, 
you know, manage your price risk is to do it side of a cash contract for delivery. So just, uh, just, you know, Brent, just so I'm clear on that, like, so that means, you know, if a company is hedging out in 25 or 26, but they're dealing yeah. with margin in 24, that may be accounting against, you know, their earnings for this year, but by wrapping in what you're talking about, they don't have to deal with that. You know, that, that gets pushed out to 20, 25 and 26 wouldn't, wouldn't impact other things, right? Is that correct? Is that how it, it kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it? that's a, that's a good way to simplify it. So it's yeah. an example. So, say we, uh, we agreed to sell a food company, um, some vegetable oils out into, you know, 2025 and, and, and say, say we decided to do that on a monthly volume every month between now, um, and the end of 2025. Um, they could get, and we set price, we, we leave basis open because they might have a different view on basis in this cash contract. And, and that does obligate us now to prior to each delivery window, we need to source the product, set the basis and arrange physical delivery, uh, and, or work around a delivery schedule. So we understand that sometimes can't take delivery and then we need to move it around, but there's an obligation, I guess, to, to take and make delivery under that. But, but the only accounting for that, even though it, it gets you a similar hedge, is once the product has been shipped and invoiced, it then becomes inventory and usually a payable or cash leaves the, the, uh, uh, the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And it's only for that shipment. So, you know, if we do that today, it's, it's the March shipment once that uh, once we start to perform on that contract and invoice, you know, then there's an accounting event by the client, but none of the other volume that goes from, you know, April through the end of 2025 is really accounted for. In contrast, if somebody entered a, a series of derivative transactions to kind of get that same hedge exposure going from today through the end of the year next year, at the end of each reporting period, they have to look at the mark to market on the, that entire series. Right. And if you think about the volume that you put on for an 18 month, or in, the, in this case, I think almost 20 month trade that we're talking about, you're talking about significant volume. So small movements in price can have a pretty big impact. And that either needs to be taken to the income statement as a derivative gain or loss, um, or you have to go through cash flow accounting treatment, which is a pretty extensive prog uh, process mm -hmm. um, to kind of develop a hedging policy, kind of state what your hedging and the cash flow impacts, test that to measure effectiveness. And then you still have some ineffective portion that you need to record. And the rest can go into other comprehensive income, which is a balance sheet category so that it doesn't impact earnings so much. So it's not that you can't get the same economic value over a long period of time. It's that you you do create interim noise um, and administration when you're looking at just pure hedging. And it's why a lot of our clients um, want to, to buy from their suppliers and do their hedging through their suppliers. What we give them is flexibility. Um, we can do that same commitment to buy, but then when they want to actual purchase, we'll buy from whoever uh, is the best offer and we'll work and coordinate that with our, our, you know, for in this example, food company uh, to say, where do you, these are the offers that we see in the market, or if you have one, we'll buy from that. 
we'll match it up with that hedge that we already have in this cash contract and deliver to you at that basis. And we can avoid um, some of the hedge accounting treatment and frustration that goes with that. Um, and then on top of that, we, we kind of using our, putting our banker hats back on and saying, you know, we can hold that inventory uh, on our balance sheet for periods of time and, and invoice you for just in time. And we can extend accounts receivable terms if we can underwrite your, your kind of your financial profile um, and, and actually increase your working capital all at the same time. So really wrapping all of those things into a single offering uh, and trying to give you know, the buyer maximum flexibility and control um, while kind of getting all these different services um, that we're providing on their behalf. That's huge. The working capital angle too. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of value. I mean, uh, what we've talked about before in terms of doing financial hedging certainly gives gives the client the independence to, to provide these structures and to shop their basis. What you guys and your team bring is the ability for that client to, to free up that cash um, that maybe they'd have to hold over for margin uh, and not to mention the added benefit of, of handling a lot of these logistics with and, and, and uh, arranging of, of delivery. Yeah, and honestly, just being on a quarterly conference call with Wall Street analysts, having to explain away wild swings in PL, right? So, yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in in a lot of our food companies, where you know the the real value they see is the brand and, and the intellectual property, um, and it's just not something that their analysts, their management team, and their boards really want to get their heads around. And they certainly don't want to be explaining something with that level of complexity if they don't have to. Should we go through an example here? Like what about just a real world example? If we use vegetable oil or soybean oil as an example right now, um, I'm, I'm just looking at front month spot prices are like 45 and a half cents here today when we're recording yep. this episode. Um, so say we're talking to, uh, you know, a, 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 maybe a marinade or a sauce manufacturer who has soybean oil needs. They like the they like these prices. They want to go out there and do some kind of a structure, maybe like where they have a ceiling on their price out, say a year uh, from now, and maybe they're willing to take a floor on the price. Um, and maybe they have a couple, say, two different suppliers that they would that they would normally buy from. How, yep. how can we? Can, let's just to, to make this real, I thought it might just be good to go through an example sure. of uh, maybe like a, a, a ceiling and maybe a floor, how that gets embedded. Like what would the client receive? What would this look like if they were to enter into some kind of a, a, a contract like this? Yeah. yeah. So we, we would first off, we, we would sit down kind of with the, the, the sauce manufacturer, uh, their procurement department, their finance departments, and understand kind of what are the things that are, are really, you know, what are your pinch points and what are you trying to solve? Um, and a lot of times we're doing this with their, uh, with their broker or their, their um, commodity risk management advisors too, even if they're kind of independent um, or within Stonex and saying, what, do you, what, are we, what are all the things we're trying to accomplish? In this case, if we're trying to, if what we're really looking for is flexibility around um, where we source product and when we lock in basis and where, what kind of pricing structure we would use, um, I think the most, you know, what we would probably advise is like, here are some structures, in this case, um, a collared structure where 
we're going to cap your upside or cap your upside cost. Um, and in exchange, we'll also put a floor on how low your kind of procurement costs can go on vegetable oils. Let's look at a period of time where you're interested in buying and locking in this rate. We're going to quote um, you know, a cap and floor value or costless value in, in this case. Um, that really reflects what the forward futures market curve is. So not dissimilar to you know, entering into a swap. If that's an acceptable price, um, and that is something they want to do, we'll lock that in, but we'll lock it in through uh, a forward physical uh, sale contract where we're selling to the sauce manufacturer. You, know, you, you kind of pick your volume, but let's let's say it's a million pounds of, of soybean oil. Let's say it's a million pounds of, um, refined bleach, deodorized sure. RBD soybean oil um, a month uh, delivered to their location, um, you know, truck or rail, depending on what uh, logistics capabilities they have um, with these delivery windows. And the price will be um, either the front month futures price or the higher or lower of the two, the, the, cap and, and, and the floor that we've embedded into that structure. Um, we'll then work with their procurement department to identify where the best supply of oil is. Is that coming from a Viterra, a Cargill, a Bungie, um, an ADM processor, um, somebody's specialty, uh, maybe even another reseller? Um, to say where's the best value on basis you know, that we have confidence to deliver on. Um, we'll lock that in and buy from that supplier. We'll mirror the basis that we get um, from them into the cash contract. Um, we'll usually have a fee and that can be anywhere from you know, you know, a half a cent, give or take uh, a pound. That's kind of what pays us for providing the service and administering um, the, the transaction. Um, and then that gets reflected in the, um, we do amendment to the uh, sale contract to lock in that basis. And then from there, it's really performance under that cash contract. It's coordination with the plant manager to make sure that they're um, able to accept the, the shipment of soybean oil when, um, when it needs to ship. Um, and or that we're making alter alternative plans to, to keep them you know, full and running, but not too full uh, so that they have somewhere to go with it. We deliver the product. We invoice them based on the hedge structure and the basis that are in the transaction and they pay for the, the oil and it, the oil payment then is, is within that hedge window that we've established in the, uh, in the trade. Is that, so yeah, I think, I think I think it does, and bean oil. I think vegetable oils are, are a good example right now. It's interesting just because we we're cheap. We're entering this new era era where renewable diesel demand is gonna is gonna put more demand on that. So it's one where we're talking about controlling commodity costs. We can put a ceiling on that for say twelve months out at sixty cents, and if a customer is gonna be happy with a floor at thirty cents. That's something that we can structure into a contract. They don't need to go to the you know to the bank to margin positions. It's something that can be embedded, and then it's something that the customer still has full flexibility over to shop basis. I mean, it sounds uh, like a really valuable service uh, that I, offering that your group. I, yeah, 
provides. Absolutely. And I can, I can say with confidence that, you know, we do this in, in the vegetable oil complex uh, on a daily basis and, and uh, can't speak highly enough about our team and, and their ability to execute on that. That's, that's fantastic, Brent. You know, besides the, uh, the vegetable oil, what other markets are you, you guys dealing in? Yeah, so it, it's most of the agri-complex. So um, all of the grains and oil seeds for the most part. Um, so wheat, corn, soybeans, canola, canola meal, oils, um, feed, feed products. So soybean and, and, and other meals, dry distillers, grain, corn, gluten, feed, soy oils and pellets. Um, those types of products, um, coffee, uh, cocoa, uh, and cocoa products such as butter and liquor. Um, and then we've got so the, the other fats and, and greases. So everything from like, uh, animal fats like tallow and, and choice white grease to use cooking oil, um, back in corn oil from ethanol distilling and those sorts of things. Um, those are the primary commodities, uh, a little bit of sugar. Um, but um, we could really cater a lot of this to what our client needs to. And so adding you know, specialty products like olive oil and avocado oil are even things that we do. Really? Oh, did not know that. That is good to know. I, sidebar question. Uh, I got to <laughs> ask about cocoa. Uh, are you, yeah. have you seen anything lately where customers have really, I mean, how, a, what's it like getting your hands on cocoa and B, uh, do we have any, case studies, examples where, I mean, the price of cocoa is just about double it's what it normally is. Parabolic. Yeah. It's very, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we source most of our cocoa out of, um, South America, specifically Ecuador, uh, and the surrounding com- countries, um, which is kind of a fine flavor cocoa and, and sort of what we have our greatest expertise in. Um, we also source product though out of, of West Africa. Um, so if for those on the call who don't know, uh, about 60 to 70% of the world's cocoa is produced today in two countries, Ghana and Ivory Coast in, in Western Africa. Uh, and those two countries uh, both had significant crop shortfalls last year, um, you know, partially weather related, partially disease related, partially uh, a bit of the infrastructure um, or the structure of their market. Um, both countries have big, uh, you know, semi-government involvement, kind of GSE type uh, involvement, and um, and probably haven't incentivized the best uh, stewardship uh, of their crops uh, over the last handful of years. So, when you get a combination of weather events, disease, and, and probably um, some suboptimal management, um, we had a big setback in supply and it turns out that demand is pretty inelastic in that product because we still like chocolate, even if the cocoa price goes up. Right. Uh, and what we've seen is price go really go through the ceiling. And it, 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 it's been challenging, to be honest, it, um, in managing our different supply chains. Uh, it's putting a lot of stress on kind of the local level suppliers that we use in Ecuador. Um, just because prices um, are so high, it's, it's, it's using up a lot of working capital. And even in Ecuador, they didn't have a great crop last year. So um, there are some, definitely some challenges in that space uh, right now. Um, all, the, all the more reason for a good, uh, good price risk management strategy uh, and structure. Um, if you are a confectionery company, 
um, you are absolutely looking at your costs more than doubling from a year ago, because in addition to price being up so much, basis is quite strong or differentials as they refer to them in, in, in the soft space. I mean, Craig and I are going to be at a, a meeting with a lot of confectionery companies in May in Indianapolis. So we're going to hope that uh, we get some ears tuning in to this episode as well. I, I've heard, I don't know what you've been hearing, Brent, but but estimates on that cocoa uh, right now, where it could go, I think are still are still quite extremely volatile, even projecting out forward. So um, yeah. maybe there's, we're maybe yet, there's... Yeah, we're yet to see real demand destruction show up in any of the numbers. And so uh, as long as we need a big crop, so the, the kind of mid crop for uh, Africa really starts in April and kind of goes through October. Um, we, we, we really would be nice to have a big crop there so we can start seeing some relief here. If we don't get it, yeah, I, it, it's hard to tell where the top is. Um, you know, I had one more question and Craig, jump in if you if you want, but I, I was just going to ask you, Brent, if you could tell us, since we're talking about global markets and, 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 and gathering supplies from various different corners of the world. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the physical logistics and support, like the, in terms of whether it's trucks or rail or containers? Yes. What are you guys, what kind of, what are you working with as far as that goes to, to handle all this business? Yeah, so we we use all forms of transportation. Um, so I'm just going to try to look up the stats real quick, but something like, you know, 15 to 20,000 trucks, uh, I believe that we kind of managed last year. We have a fleet of rail cars. We also buy a lot of spot rail cars. Um, we load a lot of containers and move them. We clear exports and, and um, export, import, export, um, customs, um, kind of all over the world, heavily focused though, in, in kind of the Americas and Western Europe. Um, we have, uh, small vessel shipments, you know, up to 40,000 ton vessels that we're moving in, in kind of the Texas Gulf down into to Central and South America. Um, so we really do have kind of the full gamut of logistics capabilities. A lot of our value proposition, especially when we're working with uh, food and consumer packaged goods companies, is is trying to find new um, markets um, or new supply chains. And a lot of that really is around uh, setting up uh, transloads um, where we're going, where we're finding uh, places to go from rail to truck or vice versa um, so that we can more efficiently uh, help our clients. We also um, are going to be adding uh, a rail logistics resource um in the coming months to help manage our existing rail fleet more efficiently but also to work directly with our clients to help them um so excited about that uh, as kind of a, a further expansion yeah. of our capabilities yeah. fin finally i will mention we also are developing and kind of in-house uh container freight forwarding and shipping um where we can at origin uh originate containers uh, help load, clear customs and ship. Most of that product comes to the U.S., but have built a really neat technology around that where we can show you know, real-time views of where the containers are, kind of what boats they're on, uh, where they're at at port, uh, and what your estimated delivery time is. A little like FedEx or UPS does today nice. or, or Amazon. 
uh, for container shipments. And we, we think longer term, that's going to have applicability even beyond the commodity space. That's awesome. Uh, man, that, that is just some, you know, this is uh, some great information, Tom and Brent. I mean, it's might be the, probably the most inter interesting episode we've done here to date on some. I was going to say, I was going to say the same thing. I think if you're any food beverage company, if you're any, <laughs> if you're, uh Oh, Brian's head's in look, if you're any food or beverage company out there and you're listening to this, I, I think you'd be remiss if you did not sit down, let's set up a meeting to talk with Brent or Brent's team in any of these ag commodities or soft commodities that he mentioned. Let's just have a conversation, um, break bread or, or have a meeting and, and see if we can identify areas of opportunity where, where Stonex commodity solutions can add value. Um, I mean, I, I don't see uh, why we wouldn't be doing that, but, um, you know, that's why we're out here, meet new people. And I hope folks have heard a lot of, a lot of this value and, and they'll pick up the phone and give us a call and set something up. Yeah. And always remember that the, all our contact information, uh, information is in the show notes of the episode. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a great, great conversation. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. Look forward to many more. Thanks, Brent. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Brent. You bet. Cheers, guys. The trading of derivatives such as futures, options, and over-the-counter OTC products or swaps may not be suitable for all investors. Derivatives trading involves substantial risk of loss. You should fully understand those risks prior to trading. Past financial results are not necessarily indicative of future performance. All references to futures and options on futures trading are made solely on behalf of the FCM division of Stonex Financial Inc., a member of the National Futures Association and registered with the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission as a futures commission merchant. All references to and discussion of OTC products or swaps are made solely on behalf of Stonex Markets LLC, a member of NFA and provisionally registered with the CFTC as a swap dealer. Stonex Markets products are designed only for individuals or firms who qualify under CFTC rules as an eligible contract participant and who have been accepted as customers of Stonex Markets. This material should not be constructed as a solicitation of trading strategies and or services provided by the FCM division of Stonex Financial or Stonex Markets as noted in this presentation and podcast. Neither the FCM division of Stonex Financial Inc. nor Stonex Markets is responsible for any redistribution of this material by third parties or any trading decisions taken by persons not intended to view this material. Information contained herein was obtained from sources believed reliable, but is not guaranteed. These materials represent the opinions and viewpoints of the author and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and viewpoints of the FCM division of Stonex Financial or Stonex Markets. Reproduction or use in any format without authorization is forbidden. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved.